And greetings, brethren, all around the world. It's good to be here with you in this way on the last holy day, the last great day, which is a wonderful meeting. We have had a wonderful festival, I'm sure, excellent fellowship, and certainly fine spiritual food, food portraying God's way of life now for eight solid days, feeding on the way of God, the Word of God, and the truth of God. And we can be thankful for this festival, thankful that God has given us these annual feasts that most people in this world just do not understand. And that we do understand God's plan and His purpose for our lives because we're here to fulfill a very magnificent purpose and we really need to understand that. But now as we go home, brethren, we're going to be surrounded by the world, worldly influences, worldly friends, our habits and ways that our workplace, our neighbors, television, the internet, radio, music, all the distractions that Satan often puts in front of us to get us sidetracked. We must not allow ourselves, brethren, we must not allow ourselves to get sidetracked when we go back home and to get back in the world and begin to think once again like the world. We've had eight days now to draw close to God and God's way of life, and we want to keep right on going that way. So we must always keep our minds on the big picture, why we were born, What is God's purpose? How can we fulfill that purpose? Let that be the dominating thoughts that go through our minds day by day and hour by hour. We must do that, brethren, and I hope we can really learn to do that. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Turn to Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul wrote, If then you were raised with Christ, if you, brethren, have come up out of the watery grave of baptism and given your life to God, seek those things which are above. Constantly think about why you're here, how God has a reward reserved for you in heaven. Not that you're going to heaven to get it, but it's reserved and he will bring it with him at his coming. And God tells us that again and again. But he has a job prepared for you right now. He's working now with you and seeing what kind of job that you and I will be fit to fulfill in the coming government of God, a real government to be set up on this earth to straighten out the horrible problems here on this earth, to bring peace and to have people cry actually with tears of joy to finally be able to eat again, to be with their families again in peace and to have the kind of peace of mind and joy that this world has never experienced before as a whole. Seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind, your mind, on things above, not on things on the earth. We get our minds on all these worldly things. What is the next movie? What is the next show or the next uh, uh, special music that we're interested in? Some kind of rock tune or something like that or the next sports event. Those are not the important things. It's not wrong to know about them in many cases, but that's not what we should have our minds on. We are called here to fulfill a tremendous purpose, and we want to always think about that purpose. For you died when you were baptized. You should have buried the old self and really meant it. You died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, that really is quite a statement. If we're really converted, though, that should be true and increasingly true as we grow in grace and in knowledge, as we grow in the graciousness, the kindness, the love, the way of God, and Christ lives more and more in us every month of our lives, then Christ is our life. 
So when Christ, who is our life, appears, he is coming back, he is coming soon, then you also will appear with him in glory, in glory. I don't think we can understand the magnificent glory that's ahead of us, but we've got to think about it. God tells us to meditate on these things and to picture that. Set our minds on these things above. What is that glory going to be like and what should we be thinking about? Let's turn back to Revelation chapter 1, the very beginning of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 4. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come because Christ has existed eternally with the Father and he is alive now and he is going to come soon and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. Get that. Christ is the firstborn. How are we born again? We're born from the dead as Christ. We're born by a resurrection from the dead or an instantaneous change if we are among the very few who happen to live right up to Christ's second coming. The firstborn from the dead. He's our example. He went first. His life and his reward shows what our life and our reward is going to be like. He will always be greater He will have been the first. He'll be our Savior, the captain of our salvation, our Savior, our high priest, our living head. But he set the example. He's the pioneer, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. We never forget and must never forget the blood of Jesus Christ, how we had to be saved. We are the church of the forgiven As you've heard me say many times, let's never forget that. We are the church of the forgiven. We've had to repent. We've had to give our lives to God. And even though we know fantastic truths that this world out there does not understand, we also should recognize many of these people, perhaps most of these people may have more intelligence, more abilities in certain ways than many of us do. They just not have been called yet and we want to help them. We want to reach them now or in the great, in the millennium, if they live on over, or in the great white throne judgment, which we heard described this morning. We've got to think about that. We want to serve these human beings, not feel superior to them or put them down, but help them wake up, of course, as we're able by preaching the truth, but not in a harsh, vindictive, self-righteous way, but to recognize we are blessed We're called to be among the first fruits of God and we have had to be forgiven and washed from our sins in Christ's precious blood. And he has made us kings and priests to our God and his plan. He has made us that. As long as we do our part, that's our job. It's certain he has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now notice what Christ is like because he is the pioneer. He's the one who went before. He sets us the example. Behold, he is coming with clouds. Every eye will see him and those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. They're not going to be happy when he comes again. They've been absolutely blinded. We read in Revelation 17 that a lot of the nations are going to be there and fight Christ to understand the deception, the total deception all over this earth at the very highest levels, you have to read those verses showing how this world is going to literally fight God. 
because Christ is God, and they're going to fight Christ at his second coming. That's amazing, but that shows the power of Satan. It shows how this whole world is going to be just totally taken over by Satan just before Christ returns, even more than it is today. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, who is, who was, and who is to come. I, John, your brother, was on the island called Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Christ. He was there to get that message. I was in spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a voice as of a trumpet, a loud voice. God is power. Christ has a voice like a trumpet, a Christ-like rolling thunder. That's the kind of voice and the kind of power we are going to have, my brethren, if we make it, if we don't get sidetracked, if we attain that glory which our God honestly does have in mind for us because the Bible is just filled with this. This voice was saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, what you see right in a book and send it to the seven churches in Asia. He describes then now down here in verse 13, in the midst of the seven lampstands, he sees one like the son of man, clothed with a garment down to his chest, golden, girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, a magnificent, powerful, extremely wise-looking being, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. We will be like that to a certain degree when we are born of God into the very family of God. His feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. Some of you have been up on the northern California coast, perhaps around the Big Sur country, and you've heard these giant waves come crashing over these great big huge rock cool whoa, and it sends great echoes up and down the coast. You've heard the sound of rolling thunder, you brethren from Texas and New Mexico and a number of those southern states that get that kind of thunder. Powerful thing, just literally shaking the building. When I was there as deputy chancellor at Big Sandy, our whole house would literally shake sometimes from rolling thunder. That is the kind of voice Christ has now and the kind of voice we will have. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Full blast, the sun radiating out from Christ's face. We will have that kind of glory, my brethren, Again, if we don't get sidetracked, if we always put first what God puts first and sincerely want with all of our being to fulfill God's purpose and keep that as the centerpiece of our lives. And when I saw him, I fell dead as feet, at his feet as dead, but he laid his hand saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am who lives and was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades or the grave, and of uh, death. So Christ is the one in charge. We will join him soon in the family of God, the glorified family of God, if we overcome, if we learn to walk with God every day, every hour, with all of our being, not perfectly, but more and more. And we've got to do that. We've got to make that the very centerpiece of our lives and think about that to understand our part in God's way and to fulfill God's purpose in our lives. So let's understand that, brethren. Turn back now to chapter 19, if you would, here of Revelation. Revelation chapter 19 now. And notice this section here in 
verse 4, it describes the glory of heaven and shows 24 elders and four living creatures falling down, Revelation 19, verse 4, and they worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came out from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, small and great. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude and the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty thunderings. Again, God describes these things. He doesn't want us to think that this is some mystery or that it's some little thing. He wants us to know it's a big thing. It's a magnificent thing. The power of God and the power of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and who is the firstborn from the dead, the firstborn of salvation, the example that goes before us, the one whom we will imitate in this life or must imitate and will imitate in the sense of our reward and the power in the resurrection, if we do our part, if we truly walk with God with all our heart and all our mind. And so he heard the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. God is going to reign on this earth through Jesus Christ. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready Are we getting ready? Are you personally getting ready to join Jesus Christ? Christ is not going to marry some dog or cat or cow or something like that. He's going to marry an equal. He's going to marry someone who has been born of God. And all of us collectively will have to have been born of God in the very family of God in order to be fit to marry Christ. We will be like God or Christ will not marry us. To her was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Yes, we will be very blessed if we're called to join that marriage supper and be part of the very bride of Christ. So we will walk with Christ through all eternity because we will have learned to walk with Christ right now, right now in this life. And that's what we've got to learn to do with all our heart and all our being. Now, brethren, we must know, God must know where we stand before he gives us this kind of glory and this kind of power. He can't afford to be creating other Lucifers out there who would turn aside. He's got to know where we stand to the very depths of our being. Turn back to Revelation, I mean back to the book of Genesis, and here we find the story of the very first one God called the very first one who was called in the sense that he was called at least to be the father of the faithful. The father of the faithful, the first one God dealt with in this particular way at least. Notice back in Genesis chapter 17, when Abram, whose name was later changed to Abraham, was 99 years old, a little bit older than me, the eternal appeared to Abram and said to him, I am, this is God's name, I am El Shaddai. In the Hebrew, God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Be perfect. Be above reproach. Walk before me or walk with God as God has it so many times through the Old Testament and the New. Walk before God. Walk with God and be above reproach. Be perfect. Be like God. That's what you and I have to do. That's what the father of the faithful had to do or he wouldn't have been there. He wouldn't have got that reward. God had to test Abram or Abram again and again. 
as his name was later changed to Abraham. And God did test him. He had to totally know where Abraham stood before he was made the father of the faithful and given the power in God's promise of eternal life. Notice chapter 22, Genesis 22. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested. God was putting Abraham to the supreme test of his entire life. And he said, Abram, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, go over the land of Moriah and offer him on the mountains as a burnt offering. Wow. Here Abram had waited for years for that one legitimate son to be born. He gets up to about 14 or some of them say even 20 years of age, a young man already because he was big enough to carry the wood for this offering. And God tells Abraham to kill him as a burnt offering. So Abraham did what? Did he argue? No, it says, so Abraham arose early in the morning. Early. He didn't say, well, I'll wait around and see and think about this, and I'm not sure of God, and I'm not sure that he knew God was there. He knew this was God speaking, or he would not have done that, of course. If I hear a voice in the night, go kill someone, I'm not going to go kill them. I would have to test God and be sure this was God speaking because God has never spoken to me in that way and I would need to be absolutely sure that God would move the sun back 10 degrees like he did for Hezekiah or something like that. But Abraham knew this powerful personality. He knew this was the voice of the creator of the heavens and the earth speaking. He rose early the next morning. His heart was totally committed to the creator God, the governor of the universe. And so he saddled his donkey and took two of his young men and Isaac and the wood, and so on. And when they got there, you see here in verse 9, they came to the place which God had told them, and Abraham built an altar and placed the wood in order and bound Isaac. Turn around, son, I've got to tie you up. This tells us something about Isaac, too, who's a picture of Christ in a different way because he was the one to be sacrificed. And Abraham here is a type in that sense of God the Father. And Isaac was so dedicated that he was willing to do what his father said. He may not have fully understood what his father had in mind, but wow, the spirit of obedience he had. You wonder why it says Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were the fathers. This is one reason. Think of the attitude involved. And he laid him on the altar upon the wood, stretched out his hand, took the knife, was ready to not stab them. Some of them have a picture like that in these old pictures. No, when they slew the Passover lamb, they didn't stab at him. They simply slit his throat real quickly so the blood would gush out. There would be very little pain. And so as Isaac was laying there, perhaps even on his face, looking down, Abram could gently take the knife in quick movement and the blood would gush out. Practically no pain, but Isaac would have been dead in a very, very short time. And he was ready to do that. And suddenly a sound comes out that must have been the most welcome sound that Abraham ever heard. Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know. What a statement. God had to be sure before he gave this man the glory, the power, the magnificence that is going to be Abraham's in a very few years when that last trumpet sounds and Christ comes down out of the heaven as king of kings and lord of lords and begins to pass out the rewards and the opportunities for service, the positions of responsibilities. 
Some will be over whole sections of God's government, as David will be over all the nations of Israel. And under David, each one of the 12 apostles over an individual nation of Israel. Who's going to be over Manasseh, the nation of America? Who's going to be over Ephraim, which was even greater in its own way with the power that the British Empire had? Who's over Ephraim? We don't know. Who's going to be over Judah? Maybe... You know, we don't know. <laughs> but each one is going to have great power that all the Gentile nations and other wonderful nations all over the earth will have a leader over them. And then major cities will have perhaps some of us over them under the apostles, under other great leaders, but all under Abraham who will be part of a team, no doubt, helping Christ run the entire world as the father of the faithful. So he said, Now I know that you fear God. He had that awe of God that most of us don't have to that degree, my brethren. During this festival, I hope you've had time to get a little feeling, a foretaste of the coming government of God, the way of God, the wonderful things we can have. And it's just a tiny hint of that. How much greater is it going to be a few years from now when Christ is on this earth and he's here in person and there are magnificent ceremonies going up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, as it describes back in Zechariah chapter 14, verses 16 to 19. And all nations go up there to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Tremendous choirs and orchestras and bands and solo instruments and trumpets blaring, beautiful scenarios, no doubt beautiful decorations. Satan has grabbed onto beautiful decorations for Christmas and stuff like that. How much more will we have at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles? It's going to be tremendous. I don't think we can fully picture it. And even more, of course, when we are made literal sons of God and can see the angels of God and go when we're first resurrected, perhaps, to see our Father in heaven. And the glory and the magnificence that is there, that won't be our reward. We won't stay there, but we will certainly get to go there to see our Father. So we need to understand that. Anyway, he said, now I know that you fear God, the awe of God. God had to see to give Abraham that reward, since you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. So then they find this ram caught in a thicket, and they knew that God had provided him. And then God says the second time, verse 16, By myself I've sworn, says the ever-living one, because you've done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. In blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants, the stars of heaven, and as the sand of the sea on the seashore. Who is that? Well, that's, of course, the whole world, in a sense, eventually, who give their lives to God through Jesus Christ. But the specific physical promises, as we read through the Bible, are upon the descendants of, of, of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh primarily, and certainly the descendants of Israel. And Ephraim and Manasseh have been given such great power, and we can be grateful for that because of what Abraham did. He said, you shall possess the gate of their enemies, or they shall possess. And who's done that? The British people have possessed the gate of their enemies. And the United States has possessed at least one great gate, the Hawaiian, I mean, the uh, Panama Canal and the Hawaiian Islands and their ports could be regarded as a seagate. That's the question. But God has given that power, those blessings to the descendants of Abraham. And when we see America and how magnificently beautiful and big it is from sea to shining sea, we read these words. We read the words back in the reward to give it to Joseph in Genesis 49. There are no other people on earth who fulfilled that like we have. The British 
and American peoples. We've had that blessing. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Why? Because you have obeyed my voice. Yes, God does want not just empty faith, but he wants obedience. Faith without works is dead. Faith without genuine obedience to worship God the way he says, to do what God says. That's what God demands. Yes, he does, brethren. The world waters it down. Well, God just sort of wants you and you can do whatever you want to and it's okay as long as your heart is right. Well, your heart is not right unless you learn to do what God says the way God says to do it. And God makes that very plain. And we in the church are hopefully really learning that lesson. So Abraham a sense of total surrender to God. Yes, Lord, whatever you say. And after this, God knew that. He said, now I know. So Abraham is the father of the faithful. Turn on over to chapter 26 now, if you would. Genesis 26. And here it says in verse 4, he told Isaac, he said, I I swore to your Abraham, your father, he tells Isaac, that I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, all of them because of what Christ did, and also because of what Abraham did. Because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, what just general ideas? No, my commandments, plural, my statutes, among God's statutes are the holy days and tithing, as we've explained, they are among God's statutes. And my laws, Abraham obeyed all those things. It was not empty faith. He did those things. And so he showed his obedience to God and God gave him this magnificent blessing. Turn back to the New Testament. We think, well, the Protestants try to say, well, the Christ's sacrifice did away with all that and you don't have to really do what God says. You, you could just worship God in a sentimental way and go to church on Sunday and, and, and just worship in whatever way we tell you. No, notice how it says back here in J- James, in the New Testament, in James, the second chapter, and let's begin reading here in this, in verse 21. It says here, was not Abraham our father justified by works? He did something. He did what God said when he offered Isaac his son on the altar. Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. Faith was working with his works. He had to believe, but he showed that he really believed by doing what God said. Exactly what God said. Even though it was one of the most terrible trials ever imposed on a human being to be willing to sacrifice his only son. And so he said, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God. Yes, he really believed God, living faith. And it was accounted to him for righteousness, that kind of living faith. And he was called the friend of God. The friend of God. Are you a friend of God Am I a friend of God? Does God look down and see that whatever he shows us clearly, we're willing to do, really willing to do. We're not often trying to find a way around it, a way to water it down and make it seem okay to go a different way. We really sense that this book is the revelation from our creator, inspired of God, and we really want to do what God says, and we have no arguments. We have no arguments, no reasonings. Most people aren't like that, brethren. 
Even in the church, we find many of us still have a lot of human nature. We try to find our way around certain things. Each of us has a special stumbling block. What's the kicking, sticking point, let's say, with you? Is it something about sex or your marriage or your children? Have they become your idol? Has your money, your position, your job, your big title in some company you have or your money that you have become your idol? What is your idol? What do you put ahead of God? What is your sticking point? Think about that as you go home. Don't let anything, anything come between you and the Creator God, the God of the Bible, the great God who's about to intervene in human affairs and literally shake every island and, and out of its place. We want to understand that. He was called the friend of God because God knew that Abraham sincerely liked him, loved him, walked with him, talked with him, communed with him, and they built a relationship over a period of decades. He was then the friend of God. And you see then that man is justified by works and not by faith only. Oh, the Protestants don't like that verse. A man is justified by works and not by faith only. So then it goes ahead in verse 26. It says, For as the body without the spirit, without breath, is dead, so faith without works is dead also. You've got to be willing to do what God says. And God makes that very plain here. Abraham could not have the magnificent reward of being the father of the faithful without being tested like that. And frankly, we're going to have to go through similar tests. Not as great, perhaps, not as awful, not as trying, but very great tests, you and me, before we're given this kind of power. And I hope we can understand that. So Abraham knew God and obeyed God and walked with God throughout decades of his life. And he became, through that process of walking with God in a regular way, the friend of God. Back in 1 John, turn now a little bit further into your New Testament here, into 1 John, if you would, the first epistle of John. And let's go now, starting in the very first verse. 1 John 1, 1. Here's this old apostle who was Jesus' best friend, in a sense, the one who leaned on Jesus' bosom that last night of the Passover and who was very close, the only one allowed to keep right on living for a long time. Most of the others were martyred. He had a special relationship. And when you read this book, you can understand why he had that special relationship with God and with Christ. That which was from the beginning, because Christ had been from the very beginning, as it tells us back in Genesis. He was with God from eternity which we have heard, yet he emptied himself and came into this human flesh, which we have seen with our eyes. The apostles were all dead now except John. And some of them were saying, well, Christ was just a disembodied spirit or he was this or that and God is not real. It's all just a concept of something spiritual. The Gnostics, the people into that kind of knowledge were trying to reason around everything God said and make it all spiritual, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled we don't say that Christ was some disembodied spirit or just an apparition or something not real. We have walked with him, talked with him, helped him in and out of the big fishing boats, helped him climb hills all over, perhaps even had a wrestling match with him in a friendly way as young men do. Yes, they loved each other. They horsed around. I don't think Christ sat that there with his arms crossed all the time looking down. He was normal and they liked him. They respected him as a man. 
And in many ways, he was a man's man, as you know, and set us an example. Our hands have handled him concerning the word of God. The life was manifested through Jesus Christ as a human being with God's spirit in him from birth, though. And we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, that being who came in from outer space and lived here among us. We have been with him day and night and night and day and slept next to him in the bedrolls and talked to him and had him tell us things that no other man could hear. Wow, it would be wonderful to have been back there with Jesus and hear those things personally. They did. They did for three years. And Hosea says, we have had that opportunity and we declare this to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Brethren, our fellowship, if we're really converted, increasingly becomes fellowship with God and fellowship with Jesus Christ. And we have fellowship with one another through God and through Christ and through God's Spirit in us. When I first came to Ambassador College, about 61 years ago, a little over 61 years ago, by the time you view this sermon, there were a whole bunch of fellows there, not a big number, of course, but about 10 other men in college at that time, plus one young woman, Betty Bates. And they were not the kind of men that I would normally have been friends with back in Joplin High School. They weren't bad guys. They, they just wouldn't have been in my particular crowd of the football players and the, the cussers and the beer drinkers and the normal guys that were horsing around as we did back in Joplin High. They probably would not have been in that crowd. But I came to love them because we had something in mind that transcended all this other stuff. They had in mind the purpose of human existence, most of them. And many of them carried right on with that in various ways. They, we were able to have fellowship, deep fellowship I came to have with Herman Hay and Raymond McNair and in the earlier days even Raymond Cole and certainly Burke McNair and many other very fine men of God during those years. Fellowship with one another, but our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son Jesus Christ. Through Christ and God in us, we have fellowship with one another a kind of fellowship we could not have in this life and a kind of fellowship that transcends anything that we have had or could have in this life. If Christ is living in us and we have that fellowship with God and with Christ and with one another through the Spirit of God, being filled with that Spirit, walking with God together and fulfilling together the purpose of human existence. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. And that is joy. This is the message which we've heard from him and declare to you that God is light. God doesn't water things down. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Brethren, God doesn't have any darkness and we are to be like God. We're told, be ye holy for I am holy. Back in 1 Peter 1 verse 12. We're not to water things down. Don't look for an excuse to do that. Always look for an excuse to walk with God, to walk with God perfectly, to be right in the center of God's will. He's telling us that here. In Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him, with God and with Christ, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. The truth. The truth. When I first came to Ambassador College, we didn't talk about 
when did you come into the church? Because there are only three churches, one in Portland and Oregon and Eugene, Oregon, and one in Pasadena. Everything east of that and everything over in Britain and Europe and around the world, there wasn't any church at that point that were in the particular church organization we had, which was really doing more of the work by far than anyone else, the true church, the Philadelphia era of God's church. The truth was the point. When did you come into the truth, we used to say? But if we walk in the light, it's a matter of walking, walking somewhere all day long, according to this word and everything we think and say and do, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. You see, our fellowship is more profound than any other fellowship we could have. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. It doesn't say it did cleanse us. It does cleanse us. It cleanses. It keeps on cleaning us up. It has to clean me up every day that I live. Some of the men in this work have died who may have certainly been and probably were in many ways more righteous and capable than me. But God has allowed me to keep on, perhaps to teach me lessons that I need yet to learn. And he's allowed you to live on, to teach you lessons that you need to learn. He keeps on cleaning us up, cleaning us up, knocking off the rough edges, fashioning and molding us so we can truly be like he is and be fit to have glory and power and eternity walking with God now and forever. So we've got to walk in the light as he is in the light and we have fellowship and Christ cleanses us. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. No, we're all sinners still. We still make mistakes, although we should be making fewer and fewer mistakes every year we live. Are you doing that? We should be growing in grace and in knowledge. If we confess our sins, we've got to be open about it. Certainly with God, you don't have to confess them to men, although you may have some in your family or friends you tell about weaknesses and ask them to pray about it. That's often a good thing, have others praying about it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. It's a continual cleansing process from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, oh, well, I've been really good all my life. Baloney, (laughs) we have not been. Let's not kid ourselves. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. No, all of us have been sinners. And as I've said, my brethren, we are the church of the forgiven. We've got to deeply understand that. I'll get a little sip of this tea here. Keep my throat clear so I keep going. (laughs) Now let's go on to chapter 2, if you would. 1 John 2 and verse 3, notice. Now by this we know that we know him, that we know God, if we keep his commandments. Brethren, we know God, that is, we're acquainted with God, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. If we say that we know God and know Christ, frankly, we're lying if we don't keep the commandments of God. He's not talking about some new commandments, but God's commandments all the way through this book, if you read it carefully, all the commandments. We have to understand that. We may know about God, some other Protestant, Catholic leaders in the world, other leaders may know about God, 
but they are not acquainted with the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Jesus Christ and Peter and Paul if they don't keep the commandments. They only know about that God. They're not acquainted with that God because they're not really walking and talking and communing and going that direction. They're not fellowshipping with God. They're not unless they keep the commandments. That's the way you know God, by letting him live his life in you, really live his life in you increasingly in everything you think and say and do. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. If we keep his word, by this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him, you say you abide in Christ, ought himself to walk just as he walked just as Christ walked, not some different way. What annual church holy days or festivals did Christ keep? Did he keep Easter and Christmas? No, he kept the seven annual holy days of God, as we've explained. That is his example. That was the example of Peter and James and John in the early New Testament church. That's the example. That's why it says in Zechariah 14, the whole world will be keeping the feast of tabernacles in a few years. That's what God wants. Turn now back to chapter 2, verse 24. He says, Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. What did Christ teach from the beginning? He said, If you would enter into life, keep the commandments. Plural. He told the young man who asked the way to eternal life. Matthew nineteen seventeen. Keep the commandments. And he named some of the Ten Commandments. Keep the commandments. Go according to what you heard from the beginning, not according to what the Protestants say. It's all been watered down and changed. No, do what was from the beginning. True Christianity is following Christ's example, what he taught, not watering it down. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will abide in the Son and in the Father. You will abide in them and you will therefore walk with them. He says in verse 28, And now little children, abide in him, Abide in Christ that when he appears, and Christ will soon appear magnificently as King of kings and Lord of lords, the whole world will be shaken and he'll come down in glory to the top of the Mount of Olives and he'll set up his throne, a magnificent temple there, no doubt, and he'll be ruling from Jerusalem as King of kings on this earth. So when he appears he says abide in him that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming why because we've been walking with him all the time it's not some new thing well i wonder what christ would would do if he were here well he is here and you're walking with him every day or you're not you're establishing that deep close profound relationship with him all day long every day or you're not are you Really, are you? So abide in him. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices, practices righteousness is begotten as it ought to be of him. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed us on us, he continues here in chapter 3, that we should be called children of God. We're already children of God, begotten children certainly, but children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. The world killed Christ. It didn't know him. Beloved, now are we the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, when Christ comes back in glory, 
we shall be like him. We really will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Not some lesser way. We will really be able to look right into the glory and the power and the magnificence of Christ, because we will be like him. We also will have his spirit body. Now a man cannot look in the face of God and live, but we will be then. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. We try to purify ourselves. We try to become perfect because we know our goal. We keep our mind on that supreme goal, and therefore we will be like God. Brethren, there is a process that we have to go through of basic things, but let's always remind ourselves of this. When you go back home, when you leave this festival, wherever you're keeping it on the earth today, what are you going to do? Are you going to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, using a biblical phrase? Are you going to begin to walk with God and walk with Christ in a more profound way, keeping your eye on that goal, keeping your eyes on the magnificent glory that you will soon have, keeping your eyes on the wonderful opportunity that you will soon have to bring tears of joy to perhaps multiple thousands or even millions of human beings, teaching them God's ways, bringing them out of the concentration camps, healing their bodies, making sure they have enough food to eat and enough water, and, and help them get over the horrible trauma that millions of them will have been through at that time. A wonderful chance to serve the whole world and to help serve God and Christ throughout all eternity. You've got to keep your mind on that goal. As you go home, you need to learn to drink into this book. Back in John 6:57, it describes how we've got to feed on Christ. Feed on this book. Drink in of it. Read it carefully. Read it again and again saturate your mind with this book and ask God to give you understanding as you start to study and drink into the book and think about it carefully. I don't think it's a sin to study the Bible on a computer, but frankly, I don't want to. I don't, I don't think it's the best, frankly. I think if you have a permanent book, it's not just flicker screen. You can punch God off, and if it, you have it here, you mark key things. You can turn quickly back to where you've marked and put your notes in. Whatever you do, but be sure you study this book, the Bible, and feed on Christ and make it something permanent, something real, something profound in your life. Study the Bible. Then after that, what have you got to do? You've got to meditate. Remember King David said back in Psalm 119, verse 172, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. You've got to think about God's law. Think about the Bible. Think about what you've read and how it applies. Not just read it carefully. Think about it. Meditate about it. Meditate about how it applies to you, how it applies to the world, why your job went go wrong, or maybe some of you have had a previous marriage that went wrong. Why? What laws of God did you break? What principles did you violate that caused it? What principle did the other person or persons break? Think about it. Meditate on God's way. Meditate on the Bible. Meditate on God's law. Then, of course, you've got to pray and get down on both knees whenever you can. And then through the day, you can just stand up in a private place. I sometimes do it in the bathroom with the, the fan kind of running where people can't hear me. And you can lift up holy hands without wrath and doubting and pray to God that way. Your main prayer probably should be in the morning on your knees in your bedroom or your study or closet or private place where you get down on both, both knees and picture God and Christ and the glory and power of heaven and talk to God 
walk with God, commune with God, say, Father, I want to be your child. I want to be there in your kingdom. I want to fulfill the purpose for which you've made me. I want to be there with every fiber of my being. Help me, guide me, lead me, teach me, fashion and mold me. You want to pray to God and talk to God continually every day of your life. And I would recommend you do it for at least half an hour. Better aim for an hour if you can, but but uh, most of us don't get a full hour every day, but let that be a good goal. Perhaps Christ may have prayed two or three hours many, many times a day, as you know. And he prayed all night on at least one occasion. Most of us don't even know God well enough to pray all night and not keep repeating ourselves. But we've got to know God and talk with God, walk with God, commune with God, pray to God and ask him, help you understand this book, help him carry out these principles, help you yield your attitude to him so he can live his life in you through the Holy Spirit, through Jesus Christ, your immediate Savior and head, living his life in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So you pray to God. And then, of course, use the tool of fasting. That's the fourth tool I often describe, fasting. That's the next thing. Once every month or so, if you're healthy and able to fast, eat nothing. I'm clear up past 80 years of age now, and I try to do it nearly every month once in a while, twice a month in an emergency, do nothing. I mean, eat nothing. Don't take any food or any water for a 24-hour period and use that extra time to study, to pray, to cry out to God and draw close to God, the Creator, where your mind is totally focused on God, on the eternal God, the Creator of the heavens and the earth, and let Him know in that way as you extra have extra study and extra prayer and meditation during this day of fasting that you want to draw close to Him, the invisible God, so He becomes more and more real to you, more and more visible to you, that He can then live His life in you and send the power of eternity into you, the Holy Spirit. Do that fast. And pray, and as you fast, humble yourself and ask God to correct you. Ask God to show you where you're wrong. Ask God to fashion and mold you. And then, of course, after the Bible study, prayer, meditation, and fasting, the next thing you need to do is to yield to God to act on the truth, to carry out God's Word, to grow in grace. Don't stay where you are. Keep getting closer. How much closer are you to God How much closer are you to the perfect example of Christ? Think about it right now than you were a year ago. Have you yielded more thoroughly to God? Do you still have dark corridors of your mind, of the way you think, hates, lusts, vanities, foolishness that's still there that you haven't been willing to face, you haven't been willing to deal with? Ask God with all your heart to help you get rid of that. Try to overcome it. Act on all these things. Do these four things as tools and then walk with God. Walk with God. Act on the truth and walk with God more and more perfectly all day long, every day that you live. This is a process of growing in grace and in knowledge so you can be there. And as you do these things, set up a regular process of self-examination. Where am I weak? Where have I gone wrong? Where does my own human self-will just well up inside of me? And I want what I want when I want it, and I'm going to get my feelings hurt if I don't get my way. Do you have that occasionally? I do. I think all of you do. And you've got to get rid of it. Stamp it out. Ask God to stamp it out, because frankly, you can't do it. So try to go through a regular system of self-examination, of deep introspection, of, of repentance, 
and ask God to grant you repentance and to clean you up and scrub you out and learn and think about it, learn with all your heart and pray with all your heart to be willing to take correction from God, correction from God's Word, correction from God's true ministers through the Word of God and be willing to act upon it and change. That's what God wants. You've got to be willing to do that to be given eternal life in the kingdom, the very family of God. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 12 now, if you would, brethren. Hebrews chapter 12, and I'm going to be reading here, starting in the very first verse, as a matter of fact. Hebrews chapter 12, and let's begin in verse 1. Therefore, we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily ensnare us. Sin easily gets at us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We've got to keep our eyes on Christ, our example, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He's there in glory and magnificence. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become worried and discouraged in your own souls. You have not yet resisted the blood. Most of you have not had to be beaten to a pulp like Christ was or some of the apostles. You've not yet resisted the blood striving against sin And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. If God puts you through trials and tests, take it as from God. Even though men sometimes bring it, God allowed it or it wouldn't happen. Learn from it. Learn from it. Do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged by when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. So you've got to be understanding that. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not chasten? Yes, you've got to be willing to learn. And he says over here in verse uh, uh, 10, Our fathers chased us for a little while, but he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. God wants us to be perfect. God wants us to be holy. God wants us to be like he is. So he does spank us. He shakes us. He rebukes us. He fashions and molds up and knocks the rough edges off of you and me. No chasing seems joyful, but eventually we learn from it. And so he says then, verse 14, pursue peace with all men and holiness. Try to be holy like God, without which no one will see the Lord. You've got to pursue it or you won't be there. Looking diligently, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and thereby many become defiled. A root of bitterness Don't let that happen to you, I beseech you. So many people somehow get their feelings hurt by events. Why did God let my son die? Why did God let my wife divorce me? Why did God let this minister correct me? Or why did I get in trouble here or there or something else happened? Someone in the church offended you or someone got ordained and you thought you should have. You got to get over that stuff. You want to be in the very family of God. And God, let God work with you and fashion you and mold you. Don't ever let yourself even entertain or start to entertain a root of bitterness. Say, Father, rebuke this if you feel that coming on you. I've had to do that many times. 
I've been corrected for certain things that I did not do. I've been yelled at about something that I did not do. But I knew God allowed it. And looking back, I think it was good for me. Don't always assume it was something you didn't do. Sometimes it was something I did do or partially did. And they thought it was worse than I intended. But God allowed it to shake me, to humble me. And God will allow things like that to happen to you, all of us, to knock off the rough edges. Don't get bitter. Let God work with you because God is trying to fashion you. He says in verse 22, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. He says, you have come to an innumerable company of angels. You're going to be joining the holy servants of God in eternity there at God's throne. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. Our names are written in heaven. They're written in the book of life if you're really converted. To God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. The spirits, the spirit essence in your mind, in my mind, that's been worked with, fashioned and molded like a diamond, the rough edges knocked off by God through us crying out to God, perhaps literally shedding tears, asking God to please clean us up, fashion us, mold us, make us like he is. The lessons we've had to learn, the spirits of just men made perfect. You're coming to that. That's what God wants before he gives you the kind of glory and power and magnificence that we've been describing. Then you will be among the spirits of just men made perfect to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling. God never forgets Christ's blood. That's where it starts. You really repent. You know the Son of God, God himself through his Son had to die for you. Don't ever forget it. So this talks about this blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if he, they did not escape, he refused him who spoke on earth. Our ancient fathers about back in Moses' time, they rejected God. How much more shall he, how shall we not escape if we turn away who, who, from him who speaks from heaven? Because God is speaking from heaven. He's intervening. In a few years, he's going to shake every mountain and every island out of its place. And God describes that. Once more, I shake not only the earth, but heaven. And says that we've got to have our mind on that. Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom, verse 28, which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. A deep sense of awe before our God. For our God is a consuming fire. The great creator of the universe has total power. And we want to fear before that. We must not turn aside. We must not get sidetracked. We've got to focus on God, on the goal, and on constantly walking with God because each step we walk strengthens us in that walk. We don't just suddenly do it unless we've been doing it all along. Turn back to John now. John 17, one of my favorite Chapters in the whole Bible, as I hope it becomes yours as well. John chapter 17. As I've explained, this is Jesus' complete prayer. The Lord's prayer, as it's called, was just an outline prayer. This is the full prayer. John 17, Jesus spoke these words just before he went out to be crucified lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, as he looked up to heaven to the great God, Father, 
The hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may also glorify you. Give me back that same glory that I had with you before the world was, he said in verse 5. That same glory, that power, that magnificence. And then he began to pray for his apostles. And in verse 20, he prayed this prayer and added this to that other. I do not pray for these alone, for his apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. We're believing in him through this word, the Bible. As we test the Bible and see it was inspired of God, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that Christ lives in us that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory, get this, the glory which you gave me, I have given them. He just got through praying up in verse 5. He says, give me back that same glory which I had with you before the world was. He was the Lagos. He was the spokesman. He was with God the Father from eternity. He's the one who said, let there be light. And there was light. He's the one who created Adam and Eve out of the dust of the earth and made them in his image to be like he is someday. God did it through Jesus Christ, the Lord God of the armies of Israel, the God of ancient Israel, the one who dealt with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and walked and talked with them and with Moses, the God who emptied himself and became Jesus of Nazareth and died for us. He's saying these words and he's the one who had that glory before and he's going to be given back that glory again where his face, as we saw there, is going to shine like the sun. His voice will be like the sound of many waters, like rolling thunder, shaking the trees, shaking the buildings. That power we can share with Christ because he shares it with us. If we walk with him, if we walk with him day by day and hour by hour and develop that relationship, that constant ongoing relationship that grows and grows and strengthens. So he says, the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. Not some different oneness, not some different glory, that same glory, that same oneness. We really are going to be full sons of God. Yes, I've said it before, but I don't want us to ever forget that. That's our supreme goal. There's nothing more important than that. As we go home, let's think about that. He says, I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. God the Father loves us as he loved Jesus and gave Jesus a full part in the very family of God because God is reproducing himself. God is building a family of spirit beings who have totally surrendered to God, totally given their hearts and minds and lives and wills to God, play no games with God, but let Christ fully live within them. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me, that where I am they may behold my glory which you've given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. Now Christ was still human, but he was certainly very close to God when he said this and was God in the flesh. He had enough personal feeling as God does. He, he loved these guys. They were with him all day long, these apostles. He wanted to share that with them. And brethren, as you walk with God, as you go home and study, as you lift up your hands to God each morning, 
and hope again sometime during the day briefly and again at night before you go to bed at least three times a day. Many other times are just personal quick prayers and walking with God. Think about it. He wants you to be his friend. He wants you to interact with him. He wants to share things with you. And so you talk to God, you commune with God, you walk with God and walk with Christ all day long and develop a relationship that carries right on over into the next dimension, into eternal life. He wants to share these things as he wanted to share. He wanted Peter and James and Bartholomew and others to see that glory. He'd been with them up and down the hills there and on big boats around the Sea of Galilee, just a big lake. And they had a lot of fun together and many good times as well as many trials. He wanted to share that with that with them. And he will want to share that with you if you become the friend of God. The friend of God. Because you walk with God increasingly every day that you live. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these things, uh, these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name. The very name, the, 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 the everything that God stands for, his power, his glory, his way of life, the totality of his being. I've declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you love me, that total love God had for Christ may be in them and I in them as Christ lives in you through his Holy Spirit. And as you walk with God, you walk right on over into the coming dimension. You walk right on over into the kingdom of God and become full members of the kingdom, the glory, the power, the magnificence you share with the Father and with Christ forever. Don't ever forget that vision. Don't ever forget that goal. Let nothing turn you aside. Go all out, my brethren, with your whole heart to walk with God now and forever.